Hello, we're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. So something happened when Christ had gone up Mount Hermon. He had provoked the forces of evil and now the forces of evil were marching against him. Many of us in at least some of our relationships might experience a pivotal moment, a moment when our relationship deepens or changes significantly. When we celebrate Easter, one of those pivotal moments comes when Jesus shares supper with his disciples. He knows the time of his betrayal is close and he has just a small final window of time to invest in his disciples. What does he do with that time? I invite you to stay tuned as we join Dr. Corbett now to consider that pivotal moment from Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word now, I pray that you would speak through me according to the promise of your word. I pray, Lord, that you also open hearts that people might hear, not just me, but you speaking through your word as it's preached and taught today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, I'd really appreciate you following with me uh, in John 13. And I'm going to give you some background to what we're about to look at because this, in the Gospel of John, this is where things turn. This is where there's a change. One of the things that I've tried to point out to you is that John is not trying to retell what has already been told. And that's remarkable because sometimes the things that God would have us say is more about what he doesn't want us to say. And if you're ever going to preach, you'll discover that because there's lots you could say. And John could say a lot, particularly as I'll make reference to what had just happened prior to us jumping now into John 13. And John 13 marks a section that we, we're going to refer to as the, the upper room. So this is the last gospel to be written. It's written with a very particular purpose. This is John's gospel, his perspective, and it's referred to as the gospel of belief because that word belief or believe occurs over 80 times through John's gospel. And this section, the upper room, but his what we need to know in order to appreciate what's being written about here in John 13. In John chapter 11, we read that Jesus was to the north of Judea. So here's my air map again. Here's Judea. There's Jerusalem down sort of here. And you go up here, you get to the northern part. That's Jericho. You've got Samaria here. Then you go up here, which used to be belong to the tribe of Naphtali. It's, it's Galilee, up here. You go further north, up in Galilee, you get to the very edge of Israel, the northern border of Israel, and it's a very clear border because there's this huge mountain there. It's called Mount Hermon. And it's the largest mountain in Israel. On one side is Syria, on the other side is Israel. Today it's a, a rocky snowfield thing, although you wouldn't really go skiing down because it is just so barren and rocky. But you can go there as a tourist. And what you'll see is where Jesus would have gone with Peter, James and John at the foot of Mount Hermon is Caesarea Philippi. This is recorded and noted, we'll, we'll see in a moment, in um, Mark chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 16. It was on that mountain, Mount Hermon, where it had long been known 
that God had banished super heavenly beings who had fallen in rebellion. This is a part of what every Jew knew. And when Jesus went there and was, he went there, of all the places, he went there to this. The further you go north in Israel, the more Gentile it is because Jews said that we're not going there because that's, that, you just don't go there. That's an evil place. And so Jesus went there. He was transfigured. And John doesn't talk about it in his gospel, which is amazing. Because I probably would have, because Peter did in his epistles he wrote about it. And in Matthew, he talks about it. And in Mark, who's writing on behalf of Peter, he refers to it because it was such an amazing event. That light emanated out of Jesus, not on him, out of him. And he lit up that part of the mountain in the middle of the night. And so he's just come back from there. And he's told Peter, James and John, don't tell anyone about this until after I've been crucified and risen from the dead. And, and the fact that he told them he was going to be crucified and rise from the dead, that knocked six steps down as they, they walked walking down toward Judea, they begin to argue among themselves. Yeah, 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 whatever. When you kick the Romans out, can, can I be like commander-in-chief? You know, and they're having these, these sort of arguments, and that shows us something that will become very clear in a moment. That this had happened. Jesus decides to wait on his return to Jerusalem. And that's when word comes. Lazarus, your friend, is unwell, unto death. And Jesus waits two days. It took two days for the messenger to walk there. And he waits a further two days, meaning that Lazarus was now dead four days in the tomb. And in John chapter 11, we see that Jesus goes there and raises Lazarus from the dead. And if you, didn't, if you were prone to not believe that what Jesus was saying was true, that would destroy that completely. And you, you would be led to believe Christ, but staggeringly many didn't. We then come to chapter 12 because after Jesus raised Lazarus, he withdrew to a small town that most Bible maps don't even have it. I mean, many of the Bible places are so small, but he withdrew to a place where we can only guess where it was, but it was in the middle of nowhere. And it was a town called Ephraim. And Jesus went there so that, and the text says, so that the religious authorities wouldn't take him and kill him because that was not the Father's will or the Father's time for Christ's mission to be fulfilled. But in coming back to Jerusalem, he goes out to Bethany where he had raised Lazarus. And he's in a house. We're not told whose house it was, but we're told that Martha was a part of the catering team. And Mary, and it's interesting, Mary, the sister of Martha, in every instance where she's referred to, she's referred to in relationship to his feet. And in this chapter 12, we see there she is again at his feet. We saw in Luke's gospel that it says that Martha was busy cooking in the kitchen and she complained that Mary was at his feet. But Jesus said she's chosen the better place, which is an amazing statement. And in this one, this had happened before, but not like this. 
in Luke chapter 7 in Galilee, in the house of Simon the Pharisee, who was a leper, we're told, a woman comes in and pours perfume over Christ's head. And this is just before Jesus has come back now. So that's interesting. That happens. And now here's Mary, the sister of Martha. She's gone and got this incredibly expensive perfume, which was worth 300 denarii. A denarii or a denarius was the equivalent of one day's wage. And so this perfume was valued at 300 denarii. That's a lot of money. That's a year's salary. She's taken that perfume, and unlike the lady described in Luke 7 just a week or so earlier, she's now taken that perfume and she's poured it over his feet. And then she's taken her hair as well. Maybe she heard what the other woman had done, but now she's washed Jesus' feet with this perfume and dried his feet with her hair. And again, that whole place would have been filled with the smell of this perfume. And no one really knew what she was doing. But two things were happening here. There's probably little doubt that the oil being poured on his head and now the, or the perfume oil being poured over his feet was something akin to being coronated as king. Because that's what they used to do. They used to pour oil over a king's head. In this instance, she's using it to wash his feet. John does this throughout his gospel. He wants you as the reader. He wants you to realize this and now this. Because what we're about to see in chapter 13 is that Jesus says it's time now to organize the Passover meal, which was a day early. So that's odd, but the disciples go ahead and do it. And they can't get a lamb because the lamb wasn't prepared yet in the temple because that was going to happen the next day. Ironically, no, sorry, precisely, at the time, Jesus was nailed to the cross. And we heard this morning Kate say that Jesus was the Passover lamb. And so here they are in this meal. And what has not happened in this meal? <laughs> no one's washed anyone's feet. And why? Because that was the job of the lowliest, lowliest servant. Uh, Norman mentioned that in those days, if you couldn't pay your debts, you sold yourself into service to your creditor so that that would pay back the debt. And this was something that someone in that position would have done to wash the feet, the feet, the camel poo, the donkey poo, the cow poo, whatever it was on the roads because they wore sandals and it would have been yuck job. And no one's done it. And so... It's now something else John wants us to know is he's told us when he fed the 5,000, the Passover was at hand. And what he's told us by telling us that is that Christ's death on the cross was one year away. This is John chapter 6. And now here we are, John chapter 13. We pick it up in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. Now, I'm pausing to reinforce to you that when you read this gospel in your devotion, note that expression. Up until this point, the hour 
is referred to as, for his hour had not yet come. And now we're reading, now his hour had come. This is the night before the Passover and Christ is having this meal with his disciples. I've told you what's just happened. What I could also mention is in John chapter 12, we also see that after Jesus had that meal in Bethany where Mary poured the oil over his feet, that afternoon he walks the 2.9 kilometres to Jerusalem and he's already organised for the disciples to go and get a colt, a young donkey, and I'll ride into Jerusalem on it. And they do. And he does. And as they do, people cut palm branches down and put them. And a palm branch, if you do a biblical study on this, you'll see the palm branch was what they waved when the walls of Jer- Jericho fell. And forever the palm became a symbol of exactly what Norman said this morning, that God can do the impossible when it seems impossible. Because those walls of Jericho were wide enough for them to hold, in the city of Jericho, chariot races across the top of the wall, around the city. That wall would never fall down in the natural, but the palm branches reminds them God did it. When they built the temple, they put palm branches, they embossed palm branches around because it was a constant reminder. In Revelation chapter 7, it says, Then I saw a multitude that no man could number from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And guess what they held in their hand? Palm branches. To say, the world says you can't, God, but we know you did. You can do the impossible. And the people gather palm branches. And that's why the Sunday before last was known as Palm Sunday because it marked the Sunday before Jesus went to the cross on Friday. And so this has happened. And they, they proclaim, Hosanna to the King. Hosanna to this King. There's Jesus. He's being proclaimed as the King. We already mentioned that that's probably what the anointing was all about in God's eyes. And here he is. Now before the Feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come. And now John tells us what that hour was to look like. To depart out of this world, having loved his own. He loved them to the end. And I want to point out, I've written a note here in my Bible as I pondered on this. What we are about to read is the most pre eminent example of mental health you will ever read about not just preeminent mental health but preeminent emotional health it's important for us to understand the background to what's happened and now we're in this upper room where jesus has told go and prepare the meal and here they are they can't get a lamb because it's not the sacrificial time yet for the lamb, but the lamb was there. As Kate said, it was Jesus himself. What's going on? He knows it's his end. He knows his hour has come. And we see that before he'd 
raised Lazarus from the dead, as I mentioned, he'd taken his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And there was a very big point that he wanted his disciples to get. And we're going to see it again. But the point was this. In Caesarea Philippi, the woman whose daughter was demon-possessed comes to him and says, Lord, heal my daughter. And, And Jesus says something to her so the disciples get what he is doing and why he's there. And he says, it's not... It's not proper to give you Gentiles, you dogs, the bread that's for the children. And this woman says, but master, even dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall off the table. One of your crumbs is all I need. And what does Jesus say about this woman? Never have I seen such great faith in all of Israel. And who is he saying that for? Probably not for her benefit, but for the benefit of his disciples so that they would get it that he hasn't come just as the Jewish Messiah, just to be the king of Israel, but to be the saviour of the world, the one who would save everybody, no matter what your skin colour, no matter what your heart language is, no matter where you were born or how old you are. He came as your saviour. So something happened when Christ had gone up Mount Hermon. He had provoked the forces of evil and now the forces of evil were marching against him. In Psalm 22, David prophetically forecasts Christ being on the cross when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22 verse 1. They cast Lots of my garments. I count all my bones. Not one is broken. The bulls of Bashan surround me. Which is a Hebraism for the forces of evil. These creatures. And one of them was, we read in the next verse, in that upper room. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. I'll just say Jesus knew this. He knew who was in that room. He knew it. He knew there wasn't just him and 12 disciples. He knew there was another creature there. He knew it. And he knew what that creature was doing to one of his 12. He knew it. He knew what was coming up. He knew what Friday was going to look like. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. And that's what got him through. If you want good mental health, exactly as Heidi prayed before, keep your eyes on Jesus. Because that's what Jesus was keeping his eyes on the Father while all this was going on. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So what is going through his mind and in his soul right now at this point? Because within an hour or so, that intense emotional turmoil that he was going through about what was going to happen, not just from what the movies show you, because the movies rarely show you what Jesus saw. Because what he saw was the devil entered into Judas Iscariot. Jesus saw the forces that had come from Mount Hermon where they'd been confined and now they were out to get him, to kill him. And the Apostle Paul says, if they had known 
that by crucifying the Lord of glory, this is 1 Corinthians, they would never have put him to death because it meant their demise, their defeat. So they didn't know. They didn't know what was going through his mind. But this is, so how would you feel if you knew all this and there's 12 guys in that room arguing over who was the greatest, completely oblivious to what you're going through? So what did Jesus do? Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he laid it around his waist. So he stripped off his garments, tied it around his waist, taken a towel. He's now bare-chested, the posture of a servant. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet as they argued over who was the greatest and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So in the midst of all of the, let's call it out, stress that Jesus was going through, he models the kind of leadership that he would be expecting of his disciples. What Jesus is about to say when he goes to Peter, who may have had what many of us men have, ticklish feet, he reveals to Simon in his response, Simon Peter in his response, that a relationship with him, a right relationship with him, is not a once-off deal. It's not an event. It's not when you gave your life to Christ. It's whether you're walking with Christ. That's what is a relationship with Christ. How do we know that? Because of this exchange. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him. Here's where we understand Jesus says a relationship with me is an ongoing thing, not a once-off event. You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, well, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you're clean, but not every one of you. Jesus knew what was going on in that room. For, John tells us, he knew who it was who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put his garments back on, he resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I have done for you, done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. This is what he's saying. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have now given you an example of what leadership really is, that you also should do as I've done to you. Last week... We had um, someone who 
is new to our church, only been here a, a short while. And they said, we want to help. We'll do anything. And then they said this, even if it's menial and we never get any thanks or attention, we're here to help. I, just excuse me. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus redefined what true leadership really was in this moment. We think of his hour as what's about to happen, the cross, and it will be. It will be the climax of it. But, you know, his hour began the moment he became incarnate, which means Christmas, when he became a human, a zygote that developed in the womb of Mary. That's when his mission began to redeem us by going through what we go through. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him, if you know these things. And here's the crunch. Here's where I've over the years I've heard people say, oh, I'm not interested in the milk of the word, I want the meat of the word. Can I tell you what the meat of the word is? Obey it. Yeah, but no, no, no. The meat of the word is a t go into the tabernacle and show me all the little intricate... No, it's when you learn about what the tabernacle is about, which is about approaching God in holiness, then become holy. Obey it. And here Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. After saying these things, notice this. I said right near the start, this section of scripture is one of the greatest examples of preeminent mental, emotional health. And for those that have a distorted picture of what preeminent mental health looks like this statement in this verse is is going to mess with you because this is what it says after saying these things jesus was troubled in his spirit can i tell you that's what good emotional health looks like when times are tough and you feel that it's tough and you get distressed that's normal that's healthy you know what it's called when you go through distressful times and you don't feel distressed? Pathological, sociopathological, where you have no connection with what's happening to you. That's not healthy. So please understand, good mental health will mean there will be times when you'll be sad. There'll be times when you'll be happy. But you won't always be happy. Oh, thank you. I'm not trying to be poo bear about this. I'm trying to pass to you so that when you leave here on a Sunday, you go, oh, Jesus was a real person. He went through a tough time and he was troubled about it, troubled in his spirit. He understands when you're troubled in your spirit. He understands when you are not happy. <laughs> And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And how, might, how must that have felt? How must that have felt? The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. 
And how did that feel to Jesus? They couldn't see what he saw clearly. Leaders often see things that people don't see. And here is the greatest leader of all time seeing what no one else could see. They couldn't read the room. They couldn't see that Judas was a scoundrel, a thief. This became clear to John afterwards. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, which is John's way of referring to himself, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. And when we say reclining at table, we're not talking about chairs. We're talking about elbows. And John's leaning across Christ on the ground when the feet are out, which is how Jesus could wash their feet back here without them realising what was going on. And John's leaning on the breast of Christ. And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Isn't that amazing? Peter, the apostle, had obviously not seen any of the moves that came out about Judas. He's always the dark mascara guy, the beady eyebrows, like usually monobrow. He didn't look like that at all. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus looks up as the breath of Christ's nostrils was coming on his face. He says to Jesus in John, who would have been about 15 or 16 years of age at this point. In fact, all of the disciples, apart from Simon Peter, were teenagers. We know that because only Simon and Jesus had to pay the temple tax, which every man over 20 had to pay. And here's John. He says... Who is it? Lord, who is it? And Jesus says loud enough for John to hear, it is he whom I give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Jesus would have seen this. Satan entered into Judas. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. And that's literature. That's John telling us the enemy moves in darkness. The forces of darkness love the night. They love the dark. And it's one of the themes through John's gospel that Jesus came as light. So Jesus has just seen this in the spirit realm. He's just seen exactly what's going on. He knows what's, where Judas is now going. He knows that within about 90 minutes, temple soldiers with swords and chains will come into the garden where Judas knew Jesus would go at night. And they'll take him away in chains. And then he'll be flogged, beaten by quite possibly 50 to 100 centurion soldiers who... Treated prisoners as a prize if they could knock them out with a punch. And so by the time Jesus makes it to the cross, the prophet Isaiah 
would describe him as having a back that looked like a ploughed field and a face that was so marred you couldn't recognise him as human. And people, when Mel Gibson's movie The Passion of the Christ came out, said, oh my goodness, Jesus dripped blood in this movie, thinking, you not read the Bible? You not read what Jesus went through? And Jesus knows exactly what's coming up. And now he has dismissed Judas from the room. And everything that is said from this point on in the upper room, which goes Matthew 13, 14, 15, 16, is said without Judas being there. Because Judas was not a part of the ongoing mission. Get the feeling what Jesus is going through in this room now? Oh man, if you, if you don't worship him in a moment, I haven't done my job very well because there should be at least gratitude come from your heart now that says, Jesus, I had no idea that this is what you're going through. I just, I just, I had no idea. But Jesus is able to stay focused in this room and talk with his disciples in a way that he's not wishing curses on Judas. He's not losing his focus. He's not anything. But he wants them to know he's come for the whole world. In the previous chapter, John chapter 12, we read this odd statement in Chapter 12 and verses 19 to 22. It says in verse 19 that the Pharisees said, we've got to do something about Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders said, we've got to do something about Jesus. Because if we don't, the whole world will go after him. Because they've seen his signs. Next verse, verse 20. Greeks came to Jerusalem wanting to meet with Jesus. And they spoke with Philip. Philip spoke with Andrew. Notice two Greek names, Philip and Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went to Jesus and said, there are some Greeks here who want to meet you. Now, if you read the next verse, don't you dare tell me you knew that's what it was going to say. Because it says this. Now is the time. My father is about to be glorified in me. If a grain of wheat does not fall into the ground and die, it cannot bear fruit. I'd be going, if I was Andrew, in fact I am Andrew, I would be going, what? And it's another one of these things that's in the Gospel of John where the father and his son are having a conversation and we don't, we're not privy to it. But when that happened, when those Greeks came and Andrew and Philip told him, Jesus is like, Thank you, Father. You told me this would happen. You told me that that would be the sign that I now head to the cross. I must die like a grain of wheat. And Andrew and Philip are listening going, what? And then John says something like this. After Jesus had died and risen from the dead, then we got it. Then we got it. So while all this is going on in this upper room right now, Judas is gone and Jesus is just maintaining maintaining his focus by keeping his eyes on his Father. Man, that's a lesson for us who feel stress at times. 
And when Judas had gone out, the text says, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, if God the Father is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And you know what? He's talking about the cross. And the writer to the Hebrews says, For the joy, Hebrews 12, For the joy set before him, he went to the cross and he endured what it took to get there. Unbelievable. This is amazing. (laughs) And so now, We are about to launch into his final instructions to his disciples. And when you think about it, some of these things that Jesus said are the most profound things in the Gospel of John. So after Judas Iscariot had left that upper room, that's when Jesus begins to give the remaining 11 his instructions about, this is what it's going to look like, boys. They're going to take me, they're going to kill me, then they're going to come after you. And don't you worry about it. You'll see why. Because I'm going to send you the helper who will help you to do things that you never dreamt of. And it's better that I go so that he can come. And so on. And then he says, but before we get there, this is what you really, really, really need to know. Come back to where I washed your feet. Remember what I've just done? I've shown you that love is service. Can I tell you two truths? Ice cream is not ice cream. Truth number one. You know why? Because if you ever go into an ice cream shop and you say there's a counter with 50 different choices of ice cream and you say to the lady behind the thing, I'll have an ice cream, please. What is she going to say? What flavor? Which which one? So that's the first truth. Ice cream is not ice cream. Second truth. You might want to write this down. Love is not love. That's despite banners that go around in street marches saying ice cream is, I mean, uh, love is love. It's not. The kind of love Jesus was talking about is the kind of love where you are prepared to lay down your life in service of another. Not about what you want, but about what's best for them. And so Jesus says this if you love one another the way I've shown you how to love, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another if you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website findingtruthmatters.org for tonight's program select the last gospel part 18 from our online store you can also find the podcast by subscribing to finding truth matters on itunes spotify or soundcloud as we've heard tonight jesus knew that the time of his betrayal was close and he would soon be taken tortured and crucified. In the midst of his anguish, he models the kind of leadership he expected of his disciples. It speaks volumes to us of who Jesus is. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.